Welcome into episode 28 of the Five Reasons Podcast. I'm Ethan Skolnick here as always with Chris Whittingham. You can find us on iTunes, on Google Play if you're an Android person. Also, you can find us on Stitcher and many other platforms. You can also find our Twitter account at Five Reasons Pod. Now, one of the things we we're trying to do here on the podcast is give you episodes that will be timeless, that will span uh, the history of some of our local sports teams. We have started with our Miami Heat Stories anthology series. You can find part one with Jason Jackson. The thing about Jason is Jason's been here for 14 years, uh, although obviously based in this area. The guy we're going to talk to next more than doubles that. So we're going to get into a lot of different topics here. Well, you know him as the play-by-play man for the Miami Heat. You've been hearing his voice now for three decades down here in South Florida. We're really pleased to have Eric Reed with us today. Eric, thanks for joining us. Ethan, Chris, it's a pleasure to be on with you guys. You're making me feel old, though. 30 years, man. <laughs> it flew by, didn't it? <laughs> well, you know, it's been 30 years of just always getting ready for the next game. So it goes by quickly. Yeah, well, as we catch you today, that's actually uh, that's actually what you're doing here. And just, again, to, to give people the history here, I, before we kind of get into our five eras of Heat basketball that we want to touch on with you, you were here that first year, but, but again, not in the role that you're in now. Could you explain that a little bit and how that came to pass? It's an interesting way to, be, to have begun and to begin this. I was the color analyst on the Miami Heat simulcast for the first three seasons of the franchise. When I interviewed for the job with Louis Chaffel the spring before the inaugural season, I actually flew down with the idea that I was applying for the radio job, and that's what I was getting an interview for. And no sooner than we began our interview at Chopin Plaza, where the Heat had their first offices, maybe about 10, 12 employees at the time, you know, we got quickly into the conversation when Mr. Chaffel told me that, um, you know, what he really would like to do is simulcast the games. There were about three or four teams in the late 80s that were still doing that in the league. But Lewis said to me in that meeting, if I can lure an experienced simulcaster to come to Miami, then I'd want you to do color. And when I heard that, I, I was like a deer on I-95. It froze me in my tracks. I was like, geez, I, I can't imagine that I could pull that off at the NBA level. Now, the funny thing for me is I started my career as a student at Ithaca College. I got an internship doing Cornell basketball's home games, color, and I got a, a, an academic credit for that. And wouldn't you know, my junior year, I'm home on Thanksgiving break. I get a call from the general manager of the radio station at WHCU in Ithaca hey, the play-by-play guy's wife is about to have a baby. He can't do the season opener at Syracuse. And believe it or not, I drove from my home in Massapequa, New York, to Syracuse in a blizzard, managed to get to the game about a half hour before it tipped. And I did a couple of games like that my junior year of college. But I wound up, my, for two years, I did color. And then when I went to Providence, my second job, I was hired by the radio station. I left Ithaca and Cornell to jump up to the Big East Conference. I really got six years of some of the best college basketball that's ever been served up. But when I got to Providence to start doing my work there, it was Brown football and Providence College basketball, new athletic director at at the college, new general manager at the radio station. And the next thing I know, I'm going to be the color guy for Providence. And they were bringing back their legendary voice, a gentleman by the name of Chris Clark. So there I was doing three years of color in the Big East. So here it's a third time with this. Now, it did make me a more knowledgeable basketball person doing color on both those levels. Certainly coming to Miami to do that was a huge leap. And I didn't think it would work. But what sold me on it, guys, was, you know, we interviewed in March for the job. 
I went back to, my, uh, to, to Providence, Rhode Island, hoping for the best. And this was pre-computers, guys. There was no Internet to keep track of the situation in Miami. So I got a subscription to the Herald, which would arrive at my house in Providence, Rhode Island, a day late. And that's how I began following the Miami Heat months before the first season. And then one day, I think it was early July, it was after the, the expansion draft and after the first NBA draft, I see a headline in the Miami Herald in the sports section, Heat hire Sam Smith to lead the Spurs and do play-by-play on their simulcast. And I shut the Herald, I closed my paper, I called up my boss at the New England Sports Network in Boston where I, where I was doing TV work, and I said, guys, I'm back. Another season of Boston College football and hosting Red Sox shows and all the things I was doing up there. And I gave up on the Heat dream at that point. And then what happened? I come home. This might have been late August, early September. And the telephone rings, and it's Louis Chaffel on the other end. And this is, you know, a good month to six weeks after the Sam Smith news broke. And he says, Eric, I still want to hire you to do color, but I want you to come down here and meet with Sports Channel Florida. They have some play-by-play opportunities to talk to you about. So I immediately flew down to Miami. Uh, In speaking with Jeff Gentner, who was running Sports Channel Florida at the time, they had University of Miami football on a tape-delayed package that I jumped at, and they also offered me the opportunity to do. We laid out the schedules for that coming year, and I could clear 15 to 18 telecasts for the University of South Florida, which I jumped at because it gave me the opportunity to to continue to work at my craft as a play-by-play man, and I made that tremendous leap of, of faith and hope thinking I somehow could pull off being a color man at the NBA level. And what really helped me in those early years, guys, was the access that the Papa Bear of of the coaching fraternity with Miami, Ron Rothstein, gave me incredible access those those first three seasons. I, I was at so many practices. He even let me sit on film sessions. What it did was enhance my knowledge of the NBA game, and it helped me get through. And remember, a color guy in a simulcast is going to talk even less because you're doing radio and TV mm-hmm. at the same time. But that's how it started. Then year four, Sam left. They moved me into play-by-play. I got to do one year with Dave Wall on a simulcast, which was the fourth year of the franchise. And I proudly say the first year we made the playoffs. It was a special year. And then in year five, they, they finally separated radio from TV. And I, I think when I came here, That was my long-term hope of thinking, well, someday they're going to split this simulcast and I'll get that radio job. And I I really love the art of doing radio play-by-play, but I've been very fortunate, obviously, and uh, really have enjoyed evolving into a TV play-by-play guy because you're using your play-by-play skills, but you also have the opportunity to talk about the game and and tell stories about the two teams each night. So I've really enjoyed it all these years. It's still a lot of fun and and, uh, still enjoying the work. Let's transition now uh, with all of that into, into part one here that we wanted to get into. And as I said, we're going to split this into to five eras. And when I posted this on Twitter, there was there was some interest in this era because I think a lot of people who became Heat fans, you know, maybe when Dwayne was drafted in 2003 or, you know, your younger generation. I mean, Chris, how old are you now? What are you, 26? 25. Is that right? 25. So, so this era is is this predates you. Totally um, foreign but, to me. I'm, I'm, so, I'm, this is actually the part I'm most interested in. <laughs> right. And when I posted this, a lot of people were interested in this because they just don't know that much about the history. I, I can remember uh, in 1988 making sure that I you know watched the first Heat game ever. I remember Sylvester Gray getting drafted and and some of the other guys <laughs> who, who were part of uh, who were part of the franchise. I mean, there were a lot more than two rounds those days in the draft, but that's 
that's the first part we wanted to start here with here was the pre-Pat Riley era. So that that's everything from 1988 until 1995. And some of the characters oh that were involved with that team. I'll start here, Eric. The losing streak that the franchise started with and then that first win against, I guess it was against the Clippers, right? That the first win yes. in franchise yes. history. What was that experience like? My mind is racing. I could tell you so many stories, but certainly it was the most charming period in the 30-year history of the franchise. We felt like we were NBA trailblazers in South Florida then. You know, we were blazing a new trail. You know, South Florida did. And you know what I did, guys? I studied. A guy by the name of Rick Haro wrote a book, and one chapter was about Miami. Rick worked for the Miami Sports Exhibition Authority. They had the ABA Miami Floridians here in the 70s. I remember coming to a game as a kid with my dad, as a matter of fact, at the Miami Beach Convention Center. But, um, you know, it was blazing a new trail, bringing NBA basketball to South Florida. Before I get into any stories, I, you won't believe this. You mentioned the name of Sylvester Gray. He was a third-round pick out of Memphis State. The guy had a body chiseled right out of Mount Rushmore. I mean, he was, he was a physical specimen. You know, he only played one season in the NBA that rookie year with Miami. And would you believe this? A couple of weeks ago, Tony and I are getting ready to do a, a broadcast at the arena, and there is a tall black gentleman about 10 feet from us, and he looked a little bit familiar, and Tony said, who is that? I look over, and I couldn't tell. I turned my back for a minute and talked with somebody else. When I look back, now Tony is in conversation with the guy, and he looks right at me, this gentleman coach was speaking to. He goes, Eric, do you recognize me? And this is totally out of context, right? And I, I give him a good look, and I'm like, Sil? And there it was, for the first time in 30 years, Sylvester Gray in Miami. I don't know who was more shocked that I recognized him, him or me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, he's, still, he's 50 years old now. He's been playing in Italy all this time. And he was back in Miami. He was filming a documentary about his life. It blew me away to see Sylvester Gray. But listen, it was a, a motley cast of characters. The Heat and Charlotte came into the league together 30 years ago with two different philosophies. Charlotte was building with veterans. You know, they had Rambis and, and Tripuka and guys like that. Their rookie was Rex Chapman. Our rookie was Ronnie Sykoy. It was two different ways of building a franchise. You know, we just saw Scott Hastings the other night. He was one of our bigs, along with Pat Cummings. And, you know, Scott now does color for Denver. Uh, I kidded with him the other night. Ironically, the Heat just had that 149-141 double overtime win against Denver. This year's Heat team has six one-point wins, franchise record. That first Heat team, we only won 15 games the entire year. Four of them were by one, including a double overtime win at Miami Arena in March of that first year when Alex English scored 51, but the Heat won 131 to 130. And uh, we joke with Scott Asings about it. He said, yeah, I tell people I gave up 38 of the 51 to English. But, you know, it, it, you know at first, the novelty of having pro basketball in Miami, it, it was a buzz. It was special. It, you know, it was almost an afterthought whether we won or lost. I'll never forget, it was, it was after the 15th loss in a row. We're 0-15, and that loss was at Chicago Stadium to the Bulls. And this is when it hit me. I start to walk down the stairs at that old arena to where the locker room was, and I saw Coach Listen, there wasn't that much media that covered the team back then. And I saw Coach Rothstein 
engulfed by like 30 media members when the Heat got to 0-15 with that loss at Chicago. And I remember thinking like, wow, this has now become a national story. It's not just our little local story of our, our first-year team. Then we went to Los Angeles at 0-16, and, and a bunch of the players and Coach Rothstein, I think, went to the Arsenio Hall show, and they got made fun of for the losing streak. <laughs> and there we were the following night, the Memorial Coliseum in Los Angeles. Norm Nixon's shot bounced off the rim at the buzzer. Dave Wall and Pat Cummings gave Ron Rothstein the best hug of that first season. And I, I always put it this way, a great weight ended and an even greater weight was lifted from Ron Rothstein when the team got that first win. All 15 of those wins were special. I'll never forget the final win of the season. It was in the last game of the year at Houston when they had Akeem Olajuwon, and they needed to win for a home seed in the, fir- in the first round of the playoffs. We didn't need to win at all, but rookie Kevin Edwards went off, Scott Hastings had a big game, and the Heat won that final game of the season on the road at Houston. And I tell you, Chris Whittingham, yeah, I know you're a history buff. You got to find you got to go on eBay and find the, the first year video the team put out. It, it's called "The Dream Catches Fire," and it is a the NBA did it. It's a great depiction of, of what that first year was all about. And that was a game that Louis Schaffel dwelled on. He said nothing said more about what the Heat was all about than that first win. Ron Rothstein, he's one of the great figures in Heat history. It's a blessing that he's back with the franchise and was a part of championships and is a part of the broadcast now. He, you know, Pat Riley is the most famous coach in the history of the franchise. Ron Rothstein set this franchise up in a bedrock way. Hard work, defense. You know, he built a foundation. He didn't get many wins out of it. But those first three years, a foundation was built of the way that he really wanted to go about, go about playing the game. I'll do you one better, Eric. The Dream Catches Fire is on YouTube. There is a <laughs> YouTube user by the name of WizKid who posted it on January 28th this year. So less than two months ago, somebody uh, efforted uh, what I would imagine putting the uh, taking it from VHS into a convertible format for YouTube, and inexplicably, there are French subtitles. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go over some of the some of the characters that you, you mentioned? Obviously, R- Rothstein, who had a lot more hair back then, uh, for sure. Um, but but some of the other characters uh, that they had again in the pre-Riley era, because there were some good players who came through here. You know, you mentioned Ronnie Cycli, who had kind of a cult following. Down here in Miami, I know now he's moved on to other things. He's a DJ, among other things that he does. But the drafting of Glenn Rice, the drafting of Steve Smith, you know, to go along with a group where you know had other guys like Sherman Douglas who were contributors on on those early teams. When did you start to see that team kind of turn the corner where, where again, they they could make the playoffs and, and remember that playoff series against the Hawks? Well, the first thing I would say, you know, you go back to the first year. We were coming close to the first regular season game. And, you know, you've got to be a ridiculous Heat fan if you remember who the starting point guard was going to be before Rory Sparrow came to the Heat. It was an undrafted rookie free agent out of LSU named Daryl Joe. His nickname was Cujo because he was a rabid defender. But this was not an NBA player. Rory Sparrow was added days before the regular season opened, and he was a stabilizing force for that first-year team. But, Ethan, you make a great point. Stu Inman was the personnel director. There was some good drafting over those first few years. You had Cycli, you had Sherman Douglas, you added Glenn Rice. Grant Long became the Udonis before there was a Udonis. Um, 
You added Willie Burton, who was a bit player on it. Bimbo Coles came in. But what the Heat did each year, they added another young piece in those first three years. And listen, the first three years, they only won 15, 18, and 24 games. But something was being built. And they made a coaching change after year three. Ron Rothstein was not brought back. I think there's many of us in the organization that wish he would have gotten that fourth year. Kevin Lockery comes in as the head coach, a lighter touch after a disciplinarian in, in Coach Rothstein. And in the fourth season, the first year of the change was the first year that we made the playoffs. And, guys, it's the only time we made the playoffs, played the Chicago Bulls, you know, in the, in the middle of the Michael Jordan era. You know, we got blown out in the first two games, and it was a best of three, you know, it was a best of three series, three out of five. We come back for that first, and it turned out to be the only playoff game at home that year. And that's the game Miami ran off. We had the Steve Smith, Brian Shaw backcourt. Sherman Cycli made it very entertaining in those early years, the Syracuse combo. Sherm was the little general who played with a big heart. The lob and the dunk became a part of who the Heat were back in the Sherman-Douglas days. I'll never forget the night where the Lakers signed him to a restricted free agent offer sheet. Miami matched it and then traded him to Boston. Listen, that was the year we drafted Steve Smith. I was really intrigued to see Steve Smith and Sherman Douglas play in the backcourt together. It would have started Steve's career out as an off guard, which was probably his best position, rather than a point. But they traded Sherm, and I'll never forget the night it happened. Sherm, we were real close. He looked at me on the bench and waved goodbye. He went to Boston the next day, and in comes Brian Shaw, who became a terrific team leader and an excellent backcourt partner for Steve Smith. And this was a team with, with Smith and Shaw and Rice and Long and Cycli, young guys, homegrown. And now we play the Bulls in this third game of the series at Miami Arena, first playoff get home game in the history of the franchise. And we run, I think Michael Jordan played like 72 holes of golf on game day, okay? <laughs> and we run out to a 31-10 to 10 lead, uh, you know, in the first quarter held Jordan to two points in the first quarter. He scored 54 in the last three. Um, the Bulls did beat Miami. Jordan finished with 56. And it's the only time in the history of the franchise where you didn't feel bad after being eliminated in the playoffs. And I remember saying on TV, first playoff series ends, but we'll be back. And now the franchise is on the verge of going to the playoffs for the 20th time in 30 years it's a franchise that's won five championships, uh, been to five championships, and, and won three. But of these humble beginnings, uh, it, it's how it all is how it all started. Yeah, and it, it's kind of fascinating going through that ninety one ninety two season. They were under five hundred and made the playoffs. Obviously, that's why you faced the Chicago Bulls in round one. What I wanted to ask you about, though, Eric, is that I know now, sort of, I, I kind of be, really became a fan of the Heat in kind of 2000, 2001. That's when I started going to games. So I don't really have a context of what the Heat's kind of place in the sports landscape was in this town before they started making conference finals, before Pat Riley came. You mentioned the lack of media presence kind of at the, uh, at the opening, in the opening season with Ron Rothstein and, and, the, and that whole situation. What for you was the growing sort of sense of the Heat in this town in the pre-Riley days? Because I, I don't know what that was like. How did the heat kind of escalate or either grow or, you know, interest decline? What were those first few years like from a fan point of view? <laughs> first of all, the, fir the first beat writers for the heat, Sean Powell from the Miami Herald, Brian Began of the Palm Beach Post. 
Ira Winderman of the Sun Sentinel. It's hard to believe he's still doing it all these years later. And then Charlie Nobles of the Miami <laughs> News back then. Those were the four beat writers. You know, obviously there was, there was charm as, as an expansion team. I think there was something unforgettable and unmistakable about an expansion team and what that experience is like. And I think for those first three to four and a half years, the home fans were into watching our young players grow, and, and we were making progress. And, you know, the first time we made the playoffs, uh, I think Cleveland lost to Atlanta, something of that nature. Kevin Lockery was on the sports rap show with Joe Zagaki and Jim Mandich as it was happening live, and the Heat sort of, I don't want to say backed in, but that's how they got into the playoffs by somebody else losing. And it was a famous video clip of Kevin Lockery thrusting his fist into the air on TV on the set when the Heat got into the playoffs due to this, the, the result of some other game. Now it's two years later, Lockery's third year, and the Heat win their own way into the playoffs. And it's uh, probably one of my most memorable calls. Uh, you know, when the Heat at home, there's Lockery pumping his fist again. And I, I say with accentuation this time, they win their way in. They win their way in. But you know what happened after that? Uh, there was unsettled ownership. That was, you know, now we're getting into the, the fourth, fifth, sixth year of the franchise. The Lockery experiment uh, or, or change was sort of waning in its success as the years went on. They made a failed attempt to make a coaching change. Uh, that's when they talked to Mike Krzyzewski and some other big-name college coaches. They couldn't get anybody else who, who they wanted. Louis Chaffel and Billy Cunningham were making the basketball decisions back then. So they bring back Kevin Lockery for, no, for another year, and then they traded away a lot of these younger players. And all of a sudden, we had Billy Owens and Kevin Willis and Brad Lowhouse and Kevin Gamble. And you know what happened to the Heat during those middle years, four, five, six? We just, the lure of expansion, the charm of expansion was wearing off. And it was just, you know, a team really struggling to win and a nondescript team of we had raised all these players, drafted them, grew them, went through their growing pains, and then just as they were really beginning to play well, just before Glenn Rice became an all-star, before Steve Smith became the player that, that, he, that he turned out to be, and we traded all these guys away, even Grant Long, and we just became this nondescript, sort of going-nowhere-fast franchise, and I think interest was starting to wane. We were at a distance, it was a two-team town. You know, University of Miami, remember, they were just bringing basketball back in the late 80s. It was the Dolphins and the Heat. And, of course, Miami Hurricanes football, which was terrific back then. So it was football first, second, and then maybe the Heat third. But then something amazing happened. I, I think it was probably the most transformational time in, in the history of the franchise. Billy Cunningham and Louis Chaffel were running the basketball, and Ted Harrison was the majority owner. He's the man responsible for bringing the heat. The Arison family is certainly responsible. Ted didn't know much about basketball, but he cared deeply about Miami and had the, the, the resources to do it, and he was willing to do it for his city. And, and he brings heat basketball, but he lets these two guys run it. And Lewis ran it with his heart. Billy lent you know, great basketball expertise back then. But you know, after trading all these players away, then Billy Cunningham decided he was ready to cash out. And Cunningham and Chaffel, even though it was a minority percentage of the team, they had management control. And that's at that time they struck an agreement to sell the team to Mr. Whit Hudson, who was Wayne Huizenga's brother-in-law, 
I'll never forget going to that press conference. It was probably the weirdest press conference in the franchise's history. And it was sort of a changing of hands uh, in a deal that never transpired. And as that deal was falling apart, Mickey Arison, Ted's son, who was never really, you know, he, I, I don't think he was as included uh, in those early years as he certainly has become. He's become one of the dominant figures in the history of the franchise. He buys controlling interest from Chappelle and Cunningham. The first move he made once. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you'd do if you had an extra hour in your day? Go for a run, take a nap, maybe check the stats of the latest Miami Heat game? I've got a better idea. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. I've benefited from therapy. I went through some life changes, major life events, had some difficulties, wasn't a believer in therapy, but it helped me and it can help you also. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. So learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Miami Heat today to get 10% off your first month. Again, that's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Miami Heat. He acquired the team at midseason. Once he, once he bought them out, he replaced Kevin Lockery with Dave Wall to run the team. Dave Wall, who was an original Heat assistant, uh, he went on to do color with me in that fourth season of the franchise. But he gets hired by Mickey midseason. And now Dave Wool starts searching for a head coach, comes very close to hiring Bob Huggins, who was at the University of Cincinnati at the time, fiery head coach of the Bearcats, who was one of the most well-known college coaches at that time. And that's when Mickey Harrison told him, slow down on the Bob Huggins search, slow down. And the next thing you know, there's a tampering charge against Miami talking to Pat Riley. And I'll never, guys... Best, com- best press conference ever. We're on the <laughs> Carnival Cruise Liner, the imagination, and you needed one for this moment. And t- Tony Fiorentino and I are standing in the back of this room. Now, we both grew up in New York. We both started our, our basketball NBA lives way earlier than coming to Miami as Knicks fans. I grew up going to games at Madison Square Garden. I was at Game 7 when Willis Reed came out of the tunnel. Um, I know what Pat Riley did in New York. You know, I know what he did in L.A. And now he's being introduced as the head coach and president of the Heat. And we're looking at each other in the back of this room. We couldn't believe it, that this was happening to the Miami Heat. It was the boldest stroke that Mickey Harrison could have taken. I think it sets a template of what an owner of a pro franchise should be about, you know, all these people that are wealthy enough to own teams, whatever the sport, they have been tremendously successful in another line of work. I think the best thing that an owner can do, the most talent that an owner can show is identifying a guy that they trust their knowledge and their expertise to run their business and then give them everything within reason that they need to be successful. The Arison Riley partnership at the very top is tone setting to this day and truly guys there's just a handful of people in in sports and in life that really you hear the term culture but there's very few people 
in this world that can instantly change a culture. I, you know, I think Parcells in his day could. I think Greg Popovich has. I think Belichick has. And I know what Pat Riley's meant to Miami. From, from that first moment of talking about a championship parade to having three of them and still having him as, as the franchise architect of, of all of Pat's accomplishments in his Hall of Fame career, I'm most impressed by what he's done in Miami because it's, it's more than coaching. It's, it's franchise building, culture building, and uh, he has made the Miami Heat, along with Mickey Harrison, I think a state-of-the-art model franchise for other teams. And just ask any Heat player, you know, when you start here and you play your whole career here, you don't know it, you ask Dwayne Wade. You ask any player that has been here and left, the whole league doesn't run like Miami. The Heat is an elite team, and I don't mean just with, with wins, just the way they run. run. And that, that really all begins at the very top with Mickey and Pat. Well, that's a great place to transition here to, to our second part, which is Riley's arrival. And you mentioned sort of the bold move to go out and get him from New York, Eric. As soon as Pat came, he made a bold move, uh, which was trading his best player. I mean, you talk about the guys who left the Heat, the young players that they developed, but the one guy who was on the cusp of stardom at that point was Glenn Rice. I mean, that was the one piece that Pat had to trade, but Pat had come from New York where he had Patrick Ewing, he had Kareem before that, and at the time, with the way that the NBA was, you needed that big guy. Like, it's a lot different than it was right now. The trade for Alonzo Mourning when Alonzo was not happy in Charlotte, that set the tone for everything else that followed. And then you look at the trades that were made during that year. And, and Eric, I always remember these because I remember being at practice at LaSalle when they used to practice down at LaSalle High School in Miami. And Pat was asked right before the trade deadline, is anything cooking You know, right now? You, you about to do anything? And of course, he told the media, no, you know, I don't have anything going on right now. I like our team. We're going to move forward with this team. And then that night, he traded five players for five other players in a three-team deal uh, that netted uh, among the players that they got was Tim Hardaway. That transformation of the franchises, when he got those two players, is that kind of when you realized that they were heading in a very different direction? Absolutely. But from the minute Pat Riley got here, we knew we were in a different world and in a, in a totally professional and championship kind of direction. You know, when, when Pat traded for Alonzo, first of all, you know, so many things have to happen. There, there was obviously problems between the Hornets and Zoe. There was an opportunity there. You know, one of the players we gave, we gave up Glenn Rice. Remember, Rice, who has become known as one of the great three-point shooters in the history of the game, I think he had 18 as a rookie. So we saw this grow in him. It was painful to give up G-Money. I think it also caused... Pat Riley, some hesitation to have to give up. Even a player like Kurt Thomas, who was injury plagued early in his career as a young player with Miami, and then he went on to play 15, 16 years in the league, which was incredible. But to get Zoe, you have a franchise cornerstone, a bedrock, a, you know, a guy. Listen, when you're best player, you know, a lot of teams get into trouble because sometimes the best players are not the best guys or hardest workers, and that could lead a, a franchise absolutely in a, in, a, in a wrong direction. When your best guy doesn't follow the rules or play hard or practice hard or show attention to detail, think of the tone that sets. So the tone-setting player was probably the prototype of what a Pat Riley player would be like. Zoe had great talent, but he breathed fire daily and nightly. I think he and Pat Riley were joined by the hip. They were perfect kindred spirits and souls to, to help lead the heat in this new direction. 
Now you got Tim Hardaway. The Mullen-Richmond Hardaway era was sort of waning down in Golden State. He was coming off a couple knee surgeries. You know, a distressed property that Pat Riley pried away from the Warriors. And now you had, he still remains the best point guard in the history of the franchise. He was dynamic with his crossover and his three-point shooting. You paired him with Zoe, and, you know, it was, it was a pretty ideal point guard and center combination. Then you add a guy like P.J. Brown, who, by the way, was an afterthought. They tried to sign Jawan Howard to a $100 million deal. It was voided by the league. And in the, in the recovery attempt, they signed P.J. Brown and Dan Marley, two guys that became mainstays. P.J. is one of the, the great underrated players in our, in our franchise history. You know, strong, I call him the quiet storm. He was strong but quiet. He was a, a terrific compliment to Zoe on the defensive end. I'll never forget when they traded for Jamal Mashburn, another piece. And, you know, how strong was the culture? I was in practice at Miami Arena the day that Mash had his first practice. And the first thing I saw was Tim Hardaway and Alonzo Mourning literally put their arms around Mash and bring him in. We need you. This is the way we do things. And uh, those were the first contending teams in, in the history of the franchise. So, unfortunately, you know, the Bulls were, were still around back then. They beat the Heat in the, in the, in the first time we ever went to the conference finals but that road warrior team in 96 97 one of the most memorable teams in franchise history uh they lived up to those old t-shirts toughest nastiest hardest working most respected you know teams in the league and they couldn't get past the bulls and then of course the frustration of of losing to the knicks in three out of four playoff series but you know through that pain of those playoff series we aged and got better as a franchise, it became one of the great rivalries in NBA history. Heat and Knicks, Pat Riley's former team, meeting Pat Riley's current team in four straight postseasons. Every series went to the maximum game, and three out of the four, Miami lost that deciding game at home. These were heartbreaking moments early, you know, in the franchise's middle age. And, you know, I remember sitting at the Allen Houston game, we didn't do the game on TV, and Jack Ramsey and I were sitting uh, in the end zone press area, and I remember standing up. You know, first of all, Terry Porter knocked an inbounds pass away, and instead of the ball rolling down the court, across half court, and time running out, a damn ball rolled out of bounds, leaving the next time for an inbounds play. Alan Houston drains that oh. foul line jumper, and I went from a standing position to actually falling back into my seat. Uh, like a house fell on me, and, and that's the way it felt that night at Miami Arena. That day, I should say. Yeah, I mean, the the Allen Houston game is, is one of the few that, that I actually remember from, from my, my childhood. I remember, like, being at my uncle's house and watching that on television, and just, like, the, the, the heartbreak of those years. I guess my question would be, they had Alonzo Mourning, they had Tim Hardaway, they had a season where they won 61 games, you mentioned that 96-97 season, but... For you, were, were they a team that you can now say in retrospect with Michael Jordan's Bulls being in the league were a legitimate competitor to them to, to win championships? Was there a conversation at the time that you felt that they could actually win the title in those years? I don't know if we felt quite that strongly about it, but they were our first championship contending teams, and that's all they thought about. So you didn't put it beyond their realm. You wanted a shot at the Bulls. And we only got one shot at them, and, and that was in that first conference final. And that was an unbelievable series. You know, sometimes as coaches do, you dwell on the losses. You know, in 2000, we move into the American Airlines Arena. It's the fourth year in a row we meet the Knicks in the playoffs. 
And that was the year Alonzo Mourning was the defensive player of the year. And with the heat up by one, Zoe made one of the, you know, I, I'm sure when he goes to sleep at night, this play sometimes pops into his head. I hope not, by the way, but it probably does. He made one of the biggest defensive mistakes of the year, about 25 feet from the basket. Somebody threw the ball to Ewing out on the, uh, deep on the right wing, and Zoe went for the steal and fanned on it. And Ewing had an uncontested drive and jam to put the Knicks up by one in the closing seconds. It was, it was a big play and a big defensive mistake. But everybody, people really have forgotten about that and just remember Mashburn passing off to, to Clarence Weatherspoon. It was so controversial. Mash probably made the right basketball play all these years later. I still contend that because mm-hmm. two guys ran at him. He moved the ball. Weatherspoon missed the jump shot. And the Heat lost, you know, a game seven at home. And there's, there's nothing that stings or hurts or lasts longer than the pain of losing a playoff series on your home court. But I, I want to go back to that first series in 96-97 when the Heat were down three games to one. It was a series that had so many great stories. Obviously, the, the game five win in Miami when P.J. Brown flipped Charlie Ward and the benches emptied. We went to the Garden down three games to two. P.J. Brown gets suspended by the NBA for the Game 5 incident, cannot play in Game 6. And I'll never forget Pat Riley's pregame talk to the team. He said, somebody else has got to step up in this locker room and bring the heart of P.J. Brown. And that night it was Ike Austin. First of all, Zoe Zoe made a huge three late in that game. He is not a three-point shooter. If you ever see the clip, it's one of my most embarrassing calls ever. I recently had another one, but when Zoe released that three at Madison Square Garden in game six, my call was, as he, as he took the three, I said, oh, no. And then when it went in, I said, oh, Zoe. That's, no, that's the perfect call. What are you talking about? Okay, I had another one this year when Wade beat the Sixers. I don't know if you've heard the clip. Uh, you know, Wade's dribbling. He's well covered. And I say, he forces it up. And it goes in. What a shot. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the guy that brought the heart of P.J. Brown that night was Ike Austin, and there was a late fast break for the Knicks. It, it would have been a decisive go-ahead score for New York late in the game, and Ike Austin, trailing the play, runs down Charles Oakley and blocks the shot. That was the heart of P.J. Brown. That was the kind of play it took. And then you come back for Game 7, Hardaway reigns in threes, and there's that old clip of him clapping and looking at Mickey Ayers and saying, I'm going home because he's from Chicago. We were on our way to the first conference finals in, in the history of the franchise. The Bulls beat Miami pretty badly uh, in that series, but it was great getting there for the first time. And, you know, my heart's always going to be with those teams. Uh, great coaching and players that play with a lot of heart. These were some great players in the history of the franchise. They never got rewarded with a championship, but – Tim Hardaway, Alonzo Mourning, P.J. Brown, Dan Marley, Bashan Leonard, a, a guy that I think is one of the most unheralded and underrated players that we've had. He was Hardaway's sidekick in the backcourt. He always guarded the best offensive player in the other team's backcourt and made a lot of threes in his day. So those were some really fun teams and fun years, even though they did not result in championships. I just wanted to very quickly point out that over the course of Alonzo Mourning's career with the Heat, he only made a total of 14 threes. So you were well within your right to, sh- to shout, oh, no, in a playoff series. And, and the thing about those Heat and Knicks series. And that's the beauty of from oh, no to oh, zo. <laughs> that's a pretty good recovery there. 
Uh, the thing about those Heat Knicks series uh, from covering all of those was just how many personalities emerged and how many storylines. I mean, uh, you know, there was there was so much bad blood between different players on those teams, whether it was LJ and, and Zoe or whether it was Sprewell and Hardaway, you know, sort of in a later iteration of that. And the, the whole Morning Ewing thing, too. I mean, you got to remember, Patrick Ewing was Alonzo Morning's mentor. They both went mm-hmm. to Georgetown. Ewing was the superstar template. So the, it was thick. And, of course, the whole anti-Riley stuff in New York. What made it more interesting for me, guys, was the fact that Jeff Van Gundy became the head coach of the Knicks at that time. Jeff and I first got to know each other when I was doing Providence College basketball on radio. Jeff got brought in by Rick Pitino, who was the head coach of Providence back then, as the graduate assistant. That's when I first came into contact with Jeff Van Gundy. And we spent two years at Providence together. Uh, All these years later, we've remained friends. And uh, to have him coaching the Knicks and to have these series all go down to the last seconds of the last game – you know, unforgettable stuff. And we, we, it was heartbreaking, but we also were very proud of, of knowing that the Miami Heat had become a part of what was the rivalry in that era of NBA basketball in the midnight from, from 96 through 2000. Yeah, and I'll always remember Anthony Carter's shot at Madison Square Garden, the one that went over the backboard. I think they actually even changed a rule because of that. So there they were just so many s- They so, did indeed. And how so about Anthony moments. Carter? who is still uh, an, in the Heat family as an assistant coach with the Sioux Falls Sky Force of the G League. Really? And it was when he and his agent forgot to opt back in at the, Hero. At the deadline. That, that, agent, um, that agent should have his number hung uh, in, in the rafters <laughs> at American Airlines Arena, if, if he has a number. Well, a- a- AC knows that he's partly responsible for that first championship team because it helped us bring in Shaq. Well, let's transition here a little bit then, too, because, um, you know, the thing that happened at the end of that era, you know, Pat Riley, you know, looked to change that team a little bit since they kept banging their head against the wall against the Knicks. And he made the big moves to get Eddie Jones, to get Anthony Mason, to get Brian Grant in that that summer of of 2000, which was a a summer that he also pursued, I I believe, Tracy McGrady and Grant Hill. And then, of course, Zoe, Zoe got sick. And so that changed the trajectory of the franchise quite a bit. I'll, I'll always remember that and being up at FAU when, when Zoe failed that physical and, and all, all of that meant to the franchise. The Heat had uh, actually a good year that year um, with guys filling in and Brian Grant playing center, but it was never, never quite the same. And so we want to transition, Eric, here to, to the next part of this, which was by the time we get to 2003, the franchise has had a couple of down years. They've drafted Karan Butler, but really, you know, still looking to sort of, you know, plan a new foundation here going forward. And then the drafting of Dwayne Wade at the number five overall pick in 2003 and that young team that he started with that first year with with Butler and that group that they had put together Lamar Odom signing uh, for what ended up just being one year but but having kind of a, a resurrection year for his career and then the transition as you mentioned to Anthony Carter's contract not being processed and then making the trade for Shaq uh, can you put into words kind of what you thought of the first time you saw Wade I remember his uh, being at his first game in, in Philadelphia against I- Allen Iverson and then kind of his emergence as a superstar that would be someone that Shaq would want to play with wow again that's there's so much uh, to encompass there first of all when Zoe got sick it was devastating to the franchise he was the player with the franchise you didn't know if it was just his career at stake or even his life. Uh, it was that serious. And, you know, he went away under those really difficult circumstances. 
but uh, as Pat Riley would, you know, you, you forge ahead and, and move on. And, and I think that Quran and Rasul Butler team, you know, Lamar Odom comes in, Stan Van Gundy takes over as head coach. You got uh, Ray for Alston shooting a million threes. It was the team that I thought after a couple of off years, uh, I always remember that group. I think they started out 0-7, um, really bad start to the year, 5-15 and maybe. And they ended up making the playoffs, winning in the first round, Dwayne Wade hit the game winner in his very first playoff game. But that's the team that made people fall back in love with, with Miami Heat basketball again. And uh, it was a really fun season. Lamar Odom had one of the best one-year stays any players ever had in Miami. He revived his career. He helped revive the Heat. You know, I thought Karan Butler, I, I'm still friendly with Karan to this day. Saw him a couple of times in the past year. Proud of the work he's doing as a broadcaster right now in the league. He was a guy that Heat fans loved. He played so hard with so much emotion. And then, again, as you say, they, they, it almost reminded me of the early years of, of losing those young players that we had grown. We let our embrace go of these guys to make the team better. Now, with Dwayne, you've know, you got to go back the season before Dwayne Wade came to the Heat. Pat Riley's last year as, as the coach, and you know the team is struggling to win. And you play the last game of the season at Toronto, the loser of that game is going to get the fourth pick in the draft, and the winner is going to get the fifth. Neither franchise wanted to win the game. Okay, it makes sense not to win the game to get the higher pick. Eric, I, Eric, on that note, player- just, to, just, just to jump in on you on that, I, I actually wrote that column that day about how neither team wanted to win the game. And I remember the Heat organization, uh, someone from the Heat organization, who we both know, contacting me and saying, that's not true. Of course we want to win the game. This was their their thing. It just, as you said, it made absolutely no sense to win that okay, game. Okay, there was no win. way. And this is not a slight. This is any organization would feel that way. It's about winning. You're in the business of winning, except on a day like that. But to the players, these were journeyman guys that were basically just passing through, okay? Why would they care about a future that they would not be a part of anyway? They wanted to win. I don't remember the particulars of the game, who who made the big shots, but we win the game in Toronto. The Raptors get the fourth pick and select Chris Bosh. The Heat with the fifth pick take Dwayne Wade. Dwayne had come off. You know, we all, even if you don't watch college basketball all year, back then I was still watching a ton of it. This year I hardly watch any, but I'm sure, I sure am watching right now. March is college basketball. And Dwayne Wade was that March, uh, the season before he came. The triple-double to take Marquette. And I grew up a Marquette fan back in the Al McGuire days. To see him take Marquette to a Final Four was thrilling. He was electrifying. And... You know, I think it's one of the great pieces of Heat history. Uh, you know, the way I feel about Dwayne, I mean, we, could go, we can go a whole hour about just Dwayne Wade. To, he's the greatest player in the history of the franchise, and I think will be for a, you know, maybe forever. Because if you just look at his body of work, you know, 12 all-star appearances in his first 13 years, five finals, three championships, a gold medal. I mean, who's going to come in here and duplicate that? Uh, that's an incredible piece of work. So to, to see it happen every step of the way, except the, you know, for that year and a half, to see how dynamic he was as a rookie. I think Shaq did partly want to come here, too. He was Shaq's next Kobe. They were a great duo. And to be honest with you, would have went to the finals the year before they won their first championship. I think it was one of the most 
poignant moments in the history of the franchise. We're playing the Pistons in the conference finals in 05-06, and it's game five, and the Heat take the lead in the series, and I'll never forget it, Dwayne Wade on a jump shot to put the Heat up by 20 late in the game, strains a muscle or, or some cartilage in his ribs. And I remember saying about it on the air, high point, low point, at the same point. Because he put us up by 20 in game five. It was a euphoric moment. And then in the next instant, he was hurt. I remember him warming up at the Palace before game six. He couldn't play. And the Heat lost game six. He came back for game seven in Miami, tried to play injured, was not effective, and the Heat lost game seven at home. It's conjecture, of course, an opinion, but it is my opinion that if Dwayne Wade stayed healthy, the Heat would have beat the Pistons in that series and, and had another NBA Finals appearance on their resume. But these were great games and great years, and um, there, there will never be any memory quite like it. And, and, and beating San Antonio for that last championship was was the crowning achievement because it was one of the greatest finals in the history of the sport. But that first championship on the road after trailing 0-2 to Dallas, um, magical, memorable, absolutely unforgettable. All right, Eric, we've kept you too long today. We don't want to keep you any longer, and we definitely want to give our listeners as much information about uh, Heat history as we possibly can. So what we're going to do is we're going to stop episode one of volume two of our heat histories anthology right here and we're going to get back to part two with eric here a little bit later in the week where we're going to cover the 2010 to 2018 period where we'll go over the big three and that coming together and then additionally everything that's happened in the post lebron era where eric can can comment on things that have happened over the course of the past four years so be looking for that here on our feed again as always you can find us on itunes on google play on stitcher several other platforms make sure you check out our twitter account at five reasons pod and make sure that you subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they download thank you for listening today and, and be sure to comment too on our twitter feed we always take suggestions <laughs>